Hello, this is Ricky Jones. And Jonathan Dorst. And this is From Sunday to Monday, the weekly podcast from River Oaks Presbyterian Church, where we answer your questions, or we do our best to answer your questions. Hopefully the questions that are generated from Sunday sermons, but also just general questions about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, Jonathan, how you doing? Doing great. Good. How was your spring break? It was good. We took our first official college visit for my 16-year-old, and so I'm feeling a little old. <laughs> but that was that's kind of fun. And you went to the Grand Canyon. Went to the Grand Canyon. I, I love that place. It's uh, I went there for the first time two years ago, and it was just so. I had kind of a spiritual mo- uh, a spiritual moment there. I uh, I don't know, just something about looking over it. And seeing the beauty and realizing that it's it's ultimately a huge scar. I mean, it's a fault in the earth, and it's something that God has made beautiful. And I just think that's such an important message for me and for my children, uh, that God makes beautiful things out of scars. And uh, so I wanted to share that with my second oldest son. It was kind of a senior trip for him, just me and him alone, and wanted to share that with him. So... The idea of of God making beautiful things out of scars is uh, kind of what we're talking about this week. Absolutely. Yeah, this is Holy Week, which started yesterday with Palm Sunday. What, Ricky, what is the significance of Palm Sunday? What is the significance of Palm Sunday? There's a lot. There's a lot there. I think, uh, you know, Palm Sunday is the day that we celebrate Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem. Uh, It is the day that uh, you know, he, he came to Jerusalem knowing that he was going to die. Uh, he was greeted on, on the way by all the other pilgrims coming to Jerusalem for Passover. And as they saw him coming, he arrived on a, on a, on a colt, a foal of a donkey. And the children cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, this is the King of the Jews. And his opposition rose up against him, told him to uh, hush the, the singing, and and he said, "Well, even if I did tell these these to be quiet, the land, the stones themselves would cry out in their place." And so, there's a lot of significance to it. One is uh, it's a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Uh, uh, Isaiah 55 talks about how when the king returns to Jerusalem, the trees of the field will clap their hands, and with the uh, the children waving the palm branches, we see a a picture of that, is, but it's a picture, but it's a it's an incomplete picture. Uh, the complete picture will be when uh, Jesus returns, and the earth itself jumps up to celebrate uh, his returning. A second, you know, interesting thing about it is this uh, this idea of God ordaining strength out of the mouth of children. Uh, their their confessions, their professions of faith, um, being what what can't be stopped when no one can can stop the, the power of truth coming in and and uh, eliciting its own confession. I think it's significant that it's children because children have no pretensions. There's they have no desire to protect themselves from the from the powers that be, from the power structures or economic structures of the day. Uh, that they are just simply telling the truth as they see it. It's it's an idea that we see even in you know fables and legends, such as the emperor has no clothes. In this case, the children are calling out, the emperor does have clothes. There he is, but no matter how he looks, he's the true king. Yeah, and I think that goes along with the theme of Palm Sunday, which was a big theme in Jesus' ministry, that it was he was a king in disguise. 
And here he is riding into Jerusalem as the kings used to ride into the city victorious. But he's riding really kind of by himself, no army, and on a donkey. And, and, but then Tim Keller brings out the idea that uh, it's a, a donkey that's never been ridden before, mm. which would have been really hard to ride. And maybe Jesus is making some statement about his, his kingship over, over creation, over the animals, and as he did in the boat when he stilled the waves. Mm. Interesting. I never thought of that. You know, there's also a pretty well-established tradition that there were actually two triumphal entries that day. That while uh, Jesus was coming in on a donkey, Pilate was actually arriving back from battle. Or coming, maybe not back from battle, but coming into the city. That's why he was there to try Jesus. And he had his own parade going on. So it was kind of the the celebration of the man versus the celebration of the meek and lowly God. I've Um, never heard that, uh, you know, some cynics like to point to the uh, the idea or point out the fact that all these voices that were crying, crown him today on Sunday, the next Thursday at his trial, were crying, crucify him. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily cynical. That's just probably true. You know, obviously, the Jewish crowds were crying out for his crucifixion. But I think it's important that we know that uh, that's not where the story ends. Right. After the Holy Spirit comes down on Pentecost, only a few weeks later, those same people were the ones who were converted. And uh, when Acts tells us that over 2,000 people were converted during that that last sermon. So it does kind of point to the fickleness of the human heart, uh, especially without the work of the Holy Spirit there to uh, regenerate and make them born again. Absolutely. So the next next major event in Holy Week is Maundy Thursday. What is Maundy Thursday? Why is it? It's not Monday Thursday. It's, Maundy. It's, not, it's not Monday, and it's not Monday, like uh, the Count from Sesame Street might say it. But it's Monday Thursday, and we get that uh, word Monday from the Latin man, mandatum or mandate, or we get the word mandate. And that's uh, the story that's taken from John 13, uh, where Jesus is before his disciples, and he's eating the Last Supper with them, and then... Uh, before, actually before the feast of the Passover, we're told that Jesus got up and take off, took off his robes and uh, dressed himself as a slave and washed his disciples' feet. And then when he finished doing that, he said, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Uh, that's in John 13. And So the, what we're celebrating in Monday Thursday is this new covenant, this new command, this new law. Love each other, uh, sacrificially serve each other the way a servant would serve um, a king. You, you, I'm, I'm your leader, and yet I've served you, so you should serve each other. Is what Jesus says to us. And traditionally, it's been a day that we've celebrated and, and really given thanks for the way that uh, the church is taking care of us. Uh, it's a day to get together and tell people thank you, and and to express love to each other and. Uh, there are some traditions where uh, people actually wash each other's feet, and uh, I actually did that last year. I, I don't. I, I was kind of having a strange year, and I, I was kind of down in the mouth. Uh, it was. I don't know if you remember, but last winter was the first season that our church had ever uh, lost members and had not grown. Or yeah. I guess the best way to spin it. So we went through a negative growth period. Uh, a bit of Scottish reference. Yeah, Scott, yeah. 
<laughs> but uh, I just decided I, don't, I knew I needed Easter to really kind of bring me out of that. And there's nothing that'll get you out of self pity better than serving another person. And so I brought uh, I brought a big uh, vat of water, basin of water, into my office, and I just decided that the first person who walked in my office. I was going to wash his feet that day and ended up being a friend of mine from Oklahoma City, Josh Curry, uh, who's a pastor over there. And It was awkward, uh, but I, I remember that as kind of a, a turning point day when um, the Lord rescued me from my self-pity in a lot of ways. I'm very thankful for that. It's so interesting that Jesus washes his disciples' feet just hours before he's arrested, knowing that he's going to be arrested, knowing that they're going to all turn on their backs on him. They're going to fall asleep in his hour of need. And yet he serves them. Hmm. He's the lowest servant. It's a beautiful picture. It really is. So then Thursday after Maundy Thursday, he is arrested. He is uh, taken to Caiaphas's house and then put on trial. And, and then we call Good Friday... Good Friday. Why do we call it good? <laughs> well, Good Friday is the day we celebrate uh, the crucifixion of Christ when uh, he became a curse for us. And uh, it was an, an entire day of suffering for him from his uh, arrest in the middle of the night, uh, the trials, the, the beatings, uh, making him march with the cross, um, putting him up between two thieves. Uh, even before then, this great moment when uh, Pilate comes out and acknowledges the innocence of Christ. Uh, I find nothing wrong with this man. He's done nothing worthy of a condemnation. And the crowds cry out, uh, give us Barabbas. And, um, and the beautiful thing is, you know, the way God works and his irony, that God the Father uh, gives them what they ask for. He gives them Barabbas and condemns and crucifies Jesus. And in giving them what they ask for, he also gives them what they need. He gives them the sacrifice. He's going to be the curse for them. And then the people cry out, you know, let let this, uh, I'm sorry, Pilate, I get excited here. Pilate is, you know, concerned. He doesn't want innocent blood on his hands. And he says, I don't want to crucify this man. He's innocent. And all the people in the crowd cry out, let his blood be on us and on our children. And you know, and our irony of that is, is there's nothing we want more than to be cleansed by the blood of Christ. They had no idea what they were asking for. And yet we know so many of those people in that crowd were later converted. They were convicted under Peter's sermons. They, they repented and believed the gospel. And so, um, and so that their cries were, were actually true. The, the blood of Christ was put upon them and they were baptized and they, they were saved through it. Such a beautiful picture. And then Christ put upon the cross and the, the sign was put upon him. Here's your king, king of the Jews, a sign of mockery. Uh, the Romans kind of making fun of Jesus, making fun of the Jews. Here's your king. This is what we think of your king. We crucify him. Uh, really an act that resembles uh, the tragic uh, sins of, of lynching that we saw in our country only a couple of generations ago when uh, when people would be, uh, when black people would be hung up in public places and, and made a mockery of them. It was a way to, to keep uh, the blacks under oppression in the same way the Romans were using this crucifixion to oppress the Jews. Uh, this is your king, and, uh, and this is what we do to your kings. And then uh, his final hours, we have the, the, the words from the cross, 
him crying out that he thirsts, uh, which of course is this picture of how he himself earlier had said, if anyone will drink the living water that I give him, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. You'll never thirst again if you drink the water that I give you. Uh, but he himself is running out. He is parched um, because his, he's had the streams of life cut off, mm-hmm. uh, which is prophesied in Zechariah and Ezekiel, I believe. Um, he's crying out the cry of dereliction when the fathers abandoned him in complete darkness. And, and he suffers uh, the fullness of hell at that point. Oh my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All goodness cut off from him. And yet even at that point of, of, of being completely cut off, he's expressing faith. He, he says, my God. It's the only time he ever prays in the New Testament when he doesn't refer to God as his father. Uh, there's no intimacy. There's no covenant. There's no closeness. But yet he does not. He, he holds the faith even in the, the depths of spiritual hell by, by referring to God as his God. My God, why have you forsaken me? And then uh, his final words of of really peace. Um, He says, it's finished, signifying that the fullness of our sin has been paid for and complete. He's suffered all that needs to be suffered for us. And then his final words of of faith, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Um, And he breathes his last, which again is very significant. In John chapter 10, he tells us, no one can take my life from me. I lay down my own life. I have that authority. No one has the authority to kill me, but I have the authority to lay down my life and then to take it up again, which he says in, in John 10, which prefigures the resurrection. Uh, Jesus died when he breathed his last. He commended his spirit into the Father's hands and voluntarily gave up the ghost uh, and then, of course, uh, took it again. So that's that's Good Friday, the day, of, uh, the day we celebrate our our salvation and, and the resurrection and the crucifixion of Christ. Yeah, this, to state the obvious, it was a terrible day for Jesus, and yet it was what we needed more than anything. Without Friday, that Good Friday, there would be no hope for us. And yet, it's it's also interesting that it seemed that Jesus knew that it was good what he's going through. In fact, in Hebrews, it says that for the joy set before mm-hmm. him, Jesus endured the cross. That there was joy on the other side. Of it. Yeah, the, the picture throughout the Old Testament is of uh, the travails of childbirth. Mm-hmm. In Isaiah 53, it says he'll see the travails of his soul and be satisfied. Mm-hmm. That it was worth it for him. That's how much he loved us. He, he, didn't, he wasn't a, a victim being cast around by the uh, slings of outrageous fortune. But uh, he was uh, a willing participant. He went forward because he loved us that much. Because he thought we were worth it. He thought we were that valuable. Doesn't lessen the pain, but it makes it just a fascinating event. And then on Sunday, we celebrate Easter, um, and it's it's considered the third day. Why why do we see it say Jesus rose on the third day if it was less than forty eight hours that he was in the grave? Yeah, that's a great question. Yes, I actually um, have been challenged by that question a few times from different people because there are places in the Bible where. Jesus, uh, you know, one time he says, a wicked and perverse generation asks for a sign, you'll receive no sign, but the sign of Jonah, who was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights. And, uh, and so in the same way, I'll be, uh, after three days, I will be raised from the dead. So he does, he does say after three days. Um, there's two traditional ways to answer that question. The oh, wildly most popular way, of course, is to say, just as we have, keep the timeline that we have and say that 
Hebrew counting is inclusive. So if there's any part of Friday that's included, then that would be day one. Uh, Saturday would be day two. And then as soon as Sunday begins, that's day three. So that would be three days. And that's that's what uh, that's the tradition that the Roman uh, calendar has taken the Catholic Church and then passed on to the Protestant Church. That's the way we've always celebrated it. Mm-hmm. Um, the Orthodox Church takes another uh, position. They believe that Jesus was crucified on Wednesday. Now, the reason why we've always thought he was crucified on Friday, the reason why we say that is because we're explicitly told the next day was the Sabbath. They wanted to get Jesus off the cross early. The Jews went to Pilate to take his body down from the cross because the Sabbath is about to begin, and it would be uh, it would be a sin. It would be it would be a, a kind of a curse, a blight on our religion to have someone being crucified during the, the Sabbath, and so. Uh, Pilate had taken down from the cross, and we're, we're told, like I said, a couple of times, uh, he, he was laid in the tomb, and then they, they hurried home. The women hurried home because the next day was the Sabbath, and they didn't want to travel on the Sabbath. Now, the interesting thing in, in what uh, Greek Orthodox and many other scholars would tell you is that it's very likely, possible, even likely, that the Sabbath they're referring to there is not the regular weekly Sabbath of Saturday, but the special Sabbath of, of a Thursday of Passover. And so he was actually crucified on Wednesday. Then Thursday was the Passover, a special Sabbath. Then Friday, the ladies would have gone into town and and purchased all the spices and uh, liniments that they would have used uh, to embalm Jesus and then gone back home. And then on Saturday would have celebrated the, the normal Sabbath. And that's why it's on Sunday. As soon as they could go on Sunday, as soon as the sun would come up, that they took all these spices to the tomb to embalm him. Um, and that's that's what James Montgomery Boyce believed and, and many others. Um, and I think that's what the Eastern Orthodox Church believes as well, though um, I certainly am no expert on what Eastern Orthodox churches believe. Yeah. So those are those are two possible uh, solutions. I could have been, and both are very likely, and honestly, um, I'm happy with either. So I like sure the way enough. we celebrate it. I like Good Friday. He's taking Sunday for Easter egg hunts and then having Sunday. So. Fair enough. Well, along the lines of sort of outlandish theories, a few years back it was pr- kind of popular seeing these articles about how Easter is really a pagan religion, that, that Christianity stole Ishtar, a pagan god, and and the rites of spring, and, and so we've just sort of co-opted that and put a happy face on it. What do you what do you think about that? Well, there's no that? question that Easter has um, has become, for many, just a celebration of the first day of spring. Even our fashions uh, kind of dictate that, which are silly but true. I mean, right? Easter's the day when you can wear white shoes. You can wear white, white, pants. white shoes and white pants from Easter to Labor Day. And I think you wore some white pants last week, though. Did I? Two weeks ago. Maybe, maybe I did. Who knows? I, I, sometimes I, I, my fashion sense is questionable. So. Yeah. But uh, you know, that's there's true there's truth enough to that. There are some silly, silly things to go around Easter. And I don't you know, I'm silly. Like I don't mind. I celebrate Halloween, I celebrate Santa Claus. I think all that stuff is fine. It's silly, it has nothing to do with the, the religious significance. And, you know, from for a lot of people that's that's largely true. Easter is nothing more than just celebrating spring and uh, being glad that the warm weather's finally here and the flowers are blooming. Um but Easter is infinitely more. Uh, there is simply nothing. There is nothing more important than the resurrection. And if you're listening, you're still listening. I, I really want to challenge you 
Um, I'll, I'll just tell you a little bit about my life. Um, Easter is something I celebrate every year of my life, but I don't think it became significant until uh, until Easter 2009. That was the first year after my brother died in a car accident. And up until that time, I'd always just more or less believed in the resurrection because I didn't not believe in it, you know. Uh, but it was never really an important thing for me, and Easter was never that important for me. I liked the songs and certainly uh, enjoyed preaching on it. But once, uh, once you cross that divide of, uh, and have a friend, a dear one, someone dear to you who's died, a brother or a family member, uh, Easter takes on a whole different significance. And you really are challenged on whether you truly believe that Easter is real, that the resurrection is real. And uh, the beautiful thing about Christianity is that it's not a collection of stories designed to encourage us or to make or inspire us. Uh, it's history. Uh, Jesus is a real man with a real body, and we believe that he was truly and completely dead, and he was put in that tomb, and that he got up, and he, he walked out of that tomb, and he still has that body today. And I, I want to encourage you listeners, uh, ask yourself, do you really believe that? Uh investigate the, the truth claims for Easter. Um, there are several. Uh, I, I have a little time here, so I'm going to go into three of the main reasons why I believe in, in Easter, I believe in the resurrection, but I really don't want you to just settle for more or less believing in the resurrection. I don't want you to settle for you know, believing in the resurrection the same way you believe that the Oklahoma Sooners are the best football team. You've just grown up believing that, so sure you believe it. You know, uh, I want you to really dig in. Um, a good book was written a couple of years ago on the resurrection, um, and they they encourage they encourage their listeners to or the readers to doubt the resurrection and and through their doubts find the truth. Um, that's what I was a few years ago, and I, I pursued my doubts. And there are three real reasons that it kind of brought me around to uh, seeing the truth of the resurrection. And, and one of those was the fact that, well, I would just say it like this, Jonathan. Um, what I find is when I read the New Testament, it's so believable. If someone really was buried and then appeared to their friends, mm-hmm. then if it was a real story, you would expect to see disbelief. You would expect people, when they first heard about it, to go, no, that's not true. And you would expect this this person who's been raised from the dead to have to kind of prove it to everybody else, you know. And that's exactly what happened. Every time there there was a a report of the resurrection, the people who heard the report said, no, that's not true. Uh, The women reported it to the apostles, and the apostles said, no, that's, that's not possible. Jesus appeared to the apostles, but Thomas wasn't with them. And then when Thomas... Or came back, they all said, we've seen the Lord. And they and he said, no, you didn't. And we're actually told in uh, Acts chapter 1, during the 40 days after his crucifixion, Jesus appeared to the apostles from time to time and proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. And that, that's exactly how it would have to happen. Yeah, these are not gullible people. <laughs> they were not gullible people. We're actually even told in Matthew 28 that when he appeared to them again, some still doubted. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and that's... That's how it would have happened. If they were making the story up, they would have they would have said, would have made themselves look bad. They would have said, you know, they would have all had the same story. 
and they would have all uh, talked about how they believed and how he did amazing things and yada, yada, yada. But um, the way they describe it is just the way it would have happened. And I find that, I find it to just ring true. The second, and I think even a more convincing argument, is that each of the apostles who saw Jesus ended up being uh, arrested. And uh, in the case of the apostle John, he was exiled. Uh, lived the rest of his days out uh, until his death, apart from his family, apart from any of his friends. All the rest of the apostles were arrested and and martyred, killed for their belief. Now, if they had just made this story up, surely one of them, under torture, (laughs) under arrest, one of them would have said, okay, you're right, we we made it up. Uh, But that they all, uh, you know, the Apostle Paul was beheaded. The Apostle Peter was crucified. The fact that, that all they had to do to stop this torture and stop this death was say, you're right, we made it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, John McCain, when he was protesting waterboarding and torture a few years ago, testified before Congress that torture doesn't work because when people are under torture, they will make up lies just to make the torture stop. You would lie to make the torture stop. Right. You wouldn't lie to make the torture begin. Uh, to say that the apostles all lied about the resurrection would be to say that they lied so that they would get tortured. And that's just not the kind of lies I tell. I tell lies sometimes if I get in trouble. My wife catches me you know, not doing what I said I was going to do. I'll lie and say I meant to do it or whatever. I've been known. I'm sorry I shouldn't. But I've been known to tell lies to get myself out of trouble. I have never once lied to get myself tortured. And, uh, and I find that to be a very convincing argument. The third and final one I'll go into now is uh, that uh, the rise of Christianity, the fact that Christianity grew exceedingly after Jesus' death. Before his death, he had 11 followers, uh, and, and every one of them had abandoned him. Now, he had 11 unfaithful followers. Just a few days after his death, he had thousands, and that number has never ceased to grow. Uh, and they, actually, if you'll, if you'll do just a little bit of history, uh, even in Acts chapter 4, we're told that uh, there were several several messiahs came around in that period. Um, they, they, people would gather, they would, they would claim, um, they, would, they would gather crowds behind them, they would claim to be the messiah, they would uh, be arrested and killed, and nothing would come of it. And we're told in, I guess it was, I'm sorry, I said Acts 4, but I guess it's in Acts 5, um, Yes, at the end of Acts 5, uh, a man named Gamaliel stood up before the council and he said, Guys, this Jesus thing, there's nothing new about it. He said, Just remember, I'm reading here from Acts 5, verse 34. Uh, he said, Just remember, uh, earlier a guy named Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed, and it came to nothing. And after him, Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men, let them alone. For if this plan or if this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even be found opposing God. I mean, what is he saying? He's saying, this is nothing new. We've had people rise up, claim to be the Messiah, They were killed. Their followers were scattered. But in the case of Jesus, he claimed to be the Messiah. He was killed, and then his followers grew. They they came together. They grew by uh, 
they grew by scores and, and by uh, they grew geometrically to to thousands and then tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands and now you know, billions. Uh, the rise of Christianity only makes sense if Jesus really was raised from the dead. So no lie has ever had that no. <laughs> kind of power. Only the truth has legs that can grow like that. And and that really is, you know, there are a lot of non-essentials in the Christian faith. You mm-hmm. know, do you use wine or grape juice in the Lord's Supper? Do you have Sunday school? Do you use drums in worship? Those are non-essentials. But the resur- believing in the resurrection, the bodily, bodily resurrection of Christ is essential. It has always been essential. It is the key. Yeah, you cannot be a Christian and not believe it. That's right. And, um, and it's the hardest thing to believe. And it, but it's so... At the end of the day, you're really deciding, do you believe your faith, this Christian faith, can affect the concrete world around you? And because we have seen a concrete man, a person, a physical person get up from the grave, we we expect to see personal results. We expect we, we believe God can affect and change what we see, feel, and touch. One of the one of the I think one of the greatest verses in the Bible for me is where it says the same power that raised mm. Christ from the dead is available to believers. I'm paraphrasing the verse, but we have that same power inside of us through mm. the Holy Spirit. We can overcome challenges. We we have new life mm. because of Christ. Yeah, I think my favorite is, uh, well, I love all of 1 Corinthians 15, but it ends by saying, uh, he, he's talking about how you can believe in the resurrection. It's true. And then he says, of course, the beautiful passage where he talks about you know death having no sting, the grave having no victory, uh, because uh, Jesus has died for us and God's given him the victory. And then he says, therefore, brothers, be encouraged. Because of the resurrection, your works are not in vain. Uh, the work that we do as a church is not in vain. So I hope that encourages you today as we finish up. Um, Amen. Because of the resurrection, nothing we do in, on this life is in vain. And this is going to be a great week. It is. I'm looking forward to it. Looking forward to celebrating with you, Jonathan. So, Likewise. Thanks for spending this time listening to us. I hope the uh, podcast has been encouraging to you. Uh, if it has been, would you mind just taking 10 seconds and uh, filling out the little survey? Not the survey. What do you call it? Writing a review. Uh, on iTunes for us, just clicking that you liked it and rate it, you know, three, four, five stars, wherever you think it's worth. Uh, That's the best way uh, to get the word out about what we're doing here. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful Easter week, and we will talk to you again next week.